2: your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. It's time for some six impossible episodes... If you are new to the show, a couple of times a year, we do an episode that looks at six different stories that, for whatever reason, we can't really do as a standalone show. A lot of the time, it's because there's not enough information to fill out a whole show, or because there are six stories that have some similar themes in common. Back in 2016, we did an episode called Six Impossible Episodes Deja Vu Edition, and that was on topics that were so similar to things we had already covered That if we had done a whole episode, it would have sounded almost like a rerun, just with different names and dates. Just swap those out. It's the exact same story. And today we're doing something a little bit similar to that. Several times over the past few years, we've done an episode about something that happened in the United States. And then afterward, we've gotten lots of notes from listeners about the same thing happening in Canada. Although the first story that we're going to get into is actually the reverse of that. Also, I do want to note that these are mostly not happy stories. Apparently, mostly people tell us that also happened in Canada about really appalling incidents in history. So we saved
2: the most heroic one for last. So starting out, uh, on July 21st, 2014, we published a podcast on les filles du roi, or the king's daughters, and this was an effort by France's King Louis XIV to send eligible young women to New France in the 1600s. France's focus in northern North America had been on the fur trade, not on establishing permanent settlements with families. And as a consequence, by 1663, there were six French men for every French woman in what is now Canada. So the monarchy recruited French women and paid for their transport to North America in an effort to try to balance things out. A
1: very similar scenario also played out in French Louisiana. At first, authorities had expected that French men would go to Louisiana and marry Native women, And then they also expected that these brides would assimilate into French colonial society. That is not how it worked out though. It turned out that the women in question had their own opinions on this subject, which was to do essentially the opposite. By the late 17th century, French officials were actively discouraging colonists from marrying native women to try to preserve the Frenchness and the whiteness of the colony. But then that meant that they needed more French women because there weren't enough to marry these men. The first
2: group to arrive by order of King Louis XIV came aboard a ship called the Pelican and are nicknamed the Pelican Girls as a consequence. The ship arrived at Dauphin Island in what's now Mobile County, Alabama, in 1704. Its passengers included 23 French women and two families sent after repeated requests by Governor Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne de Bienville and other colonial officials
1: the Chancellor of France, wrote to the governor about these women, and this is what the letter said. Quote, Each of these girls was raised in virtue and piety and knows how to work, which will render them useful in the colony by showing the Indian girls what they can do. For this, there being no point in sending other than a virtue known and without reproach His Majesty entrusted the Bishop of Quebec to certify them in order that they not be suspected of debauch. You will take care to establish them the best that you can and to marry them to men capable of having
2: them subsist with some degree of comfort. Although most of these women got married very quickly, beyond that, this first effort did not go well. Recruiters had described Louisiana as an amazing and wealthy paradise, which was not even remotely true. The women arrived during a persistent and severe food shortage. Diseases were rampant, and the terrain, if you've ever been to Louisiana, you know this, was swampy. And the French colonists faced ongoing and justified threats from the region's enslaved and indigenous populations.
1: Conditions were so bad and so different from what they had been promised that in 1706, a lot of these women launched a protest trying to get passage out of the colony and back to France. This uprising was given the disparaging nickname the
2: Petticoat Insurrection. Today, this protest is folded into the lore about the origins of Creole cuisine. Supposedly, everything was resolved when the governor's housekeeper, Madame Langlois, taught the women how to cook with local ingredients and spices. Because that would solve all the problems, shrug. Um... (laughs) But it is not clear whether Langua ever existed, and this story really minimizes indigenous and African contributions to Creole cuisine. But it is clear that this protest was about a lot more than cooking ingredients. Yeah,
1: even in in accounts written by, like, the male leaders of the time were like, they're just unhappy because they don't like to eat corn. And that was not, that was like one tiny piece of this whole situation Regardless, though, word got back to France about what this Louisiana colony was really like, and soon women were no longer willing to go there, unsurprisingly. So authorities started recruiting women from orphanages, hospitals, and prisons. And especially when it came to women who had been convicted of a crime, these migrations were forced. They were not voluntary, as that first shipload had been. And even for the ones that were technically voluntary, the women in question a lot of the time did not have many other options. Either way, many of these women died on the way to Louisiana, and the ones who survived often were not all that eager to marry a colonist and start keeping
2: house for him. France ended the formal migration program in 1720, but the most famous group of women arrived in New Orleans early the following year. These are the ones most commonly known as the Casket Girls. These were 88 women recruited from a hospital in Paris that wasn't just a medical facility, but was also housing for both orphans and prisoners. Although 19 of these women married quickly and 31 married later on, the rest either refused to marry or returned to France. The name
1: Casket was reportedly from the boxes that These women were using to carry their belongings as they traveled. You'll see articles online that variously explain the name casket is coming from the French casquette or cassette, even though casquette is not a box, it is a hat.
2: The story of the casket girls departs from reality, though. Articles all over the web describe a group of women who arrived in New Orleans in 1728, all meticulously chosen to be attractive and virtuous. But the migration program had been over for years by that point. And according to Marcia A. Zug, who has written a book on these programs, the only ship carrying a group of women that arrived in New Orleans in 1728 was carrying Ursuline nuns, not women available for marriage. Uh, as a side note, if you want to hear Zug talk more about this, she is on episode 120 of the podcast Ben Franklin's World that is titled "Marcia Zug, A History of Mail-Order Brides in Early America.
1: This is not the only departure from reality when it comes to the story of the casket girls, though. If you go on a ghost tour of New Orleans, you might hear a story about how these mythical 1728 arrivals came with their caskets and were immediately suspected to be vampires because they sunburned easily, and the trunks they were carrying looked like coffins. This just doesn't hold up from the beginning, because it was 100% completely normal for new arrivals in the colony to get sunburns in the subtropical sun, and to carry their things in trunks and other boxes. There's a whole story about these women being taken to that Ursuline convent in the French Quarter and then their caskets being found to be mysteriously empty, after which point the nuns had the attic windows nailed shut using just an astounding number of silver nails. All of this because vampires. Sure. Uh...
2: (laughs) Uh, these women's stories are not as well documented as the king's daughters, though, possibly because there were far fewer of them, and also because the program in Louisiana was just not as successful as it had been in Canada.
1: Yeah, the, and we we talk so much and so much more detail about the program uh, in in what's now Canada, where the women had a lot of choices; they had a lot more freedoms. Um, it, it was one of those circumstances where you're like, okay, people probably didn't have as many options in Europe as they did in North America, and in a lot of ways that life turned out to be better. And in most cases, that was not the case in Louisiana. These women showed up and were not really appreciated and were made fun of and called ugly and were were much smaller in number. So when you look at French-Canadian genealogy, so many French-Canadians are descended from these, these women in, in Canada, but it's not... Um, there's not as much of a through line in Louisiana, although an astounding number of people say they were descended from these um, fictitious 1728 meticulously chosen to be virtuous and beautiful <laughs>
2: casket girl. I feel like that happens in almost any mythology, right? I mean, we've been to places that are, are famous for various reasons and there are often people who are like, yes, I am descended from person X, Y, or Z. And it's like, uh, hmm, I have some questions. That person did not live here, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, there's some um, um, possibilities going on. But who am I to take that away from them?
1: Yeah. These were real and complicated women, and their stories have been really pretty heavily mythologized. To move on. On November 13th and 15th, 2017, we put out a two-part podcast on the Fort Shaw Indian School Girls Basketball Team. And a big part of that episode was the system of boarding schools established in the United States to separate Native children from their cultures and to so-called Americanize them. Colonel Richard Henry Pratt, who was a major figure in establishing this whole system, summed it up as: quote, kill the Indian and save the man.
2: Canada had a nearly identical system of boarding schools, known as residential schools. As was the case in the United States, mission schools in Canada went all the way back to the early colonization of New France. But in terms of a more formalized, systemic program, that started in the 1830s, expanding dramatically in the 1880s after changes to federal policy regarding both education and indigenous people.
1: By 1931, when the Canadian system was at its largest, there were about 80 schools. With the exception of Newfoundland, Prince Edward Island, and New Brunswick, every Canadian province and territory had at least one school. Over the course of the program, about 150,000 children were separated from their families for months or years at a time, and the last of these schools did not shut down until 1996.
2: These schools were part of a government program, but until 1969, they were run by churches, primarily the Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the United Church of Canada, and the Presbyterian Church. The Methodist Church also operated some schools up until 1925.
1: These schools had the same goals as the ones in the United States did to separate Canada's First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children from their cultures, to Christianize them, to teach them English and French, and to assimilate them into Euro-Canadian society. Conditions at the schools were often very cruel. There were also documented cases of physical and sexual abuse. As many as 6,000 children died in these schools, including from disease and malnutrition, And some of these students were experimented on. There was a series of experiments carried out in the 1940s and 50s that studied the effects of malnutrition, and these were conducted with the government's knowledge. Basically, somebody visiting the school had noticed that the children were malnourished, and instead of fixing the problem, only supplemented the diets of parts of some of the children
2: to study what happened with the others. In the 1990s, the Canadian government convened a Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in response to a call from Phil Fontaine, who would later become the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Advocacy had already been going on at that point, but Fontaine was really the key figure bringing it to national attention. The commission issued a report about the schools and recommended a public inquiry. Although the public inquiry never happened, a later class action settlement resulted in the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement, which came into effect in September of 2007. This agreement
1: included the Common Experience Payment, which was a $1.9 billion compensation program for people who had been forced to attend these schools. Former students were eligible for $10,000 for their first year or partial year in attendance and $3,000 for each subsequent year. And as of September thirtieth, twenty thirteen, 2013, $1.6 billion had been paid on more than 105,000 cases.
2: The agreement also set up an assessment process for cases of physical, psychological, and sexual abuse. It established a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and set up a commemoration fund. There have been some criticisms of this settlement, though, including unethical lawyers who took advantage of people seeking restitution and the exclusion of Newfoundland and Labrador from the settlement.
1: Yeah, the argument was that that wasn't part of Canada yet during a lot of this time, but there were still people there who were affected Prime Minister Stephen Harper formally apologized for the boarding school system on June 11, 2008, and several
2: churches that were involved in these programs have apologized as well. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that was established under the settlement agreement, issued its final report in 2015. Its introduction began quote, For over a century, the central goals of Canada's Aboriginal policy were to eliminate Aboriginal governments, ignore Aboriginal rights, terminate the treaties, and, through a process of assimilation, cause Aboriginal peoples to cease to exist as distinct legal, social, cultural, religious, and racial entities in Canada. The establishment and operation of residential schools were a central element of this policy, which can best be described as cultural genocide. This report went on to make 94 recommendations to repair the damage caused by the schools.
1: This report also noted a related practice that became known as the Sixties Scoop. From the 1960s through the 1980s, thousands of Indigenous children in Canada were taken from their families and placed in foster care, then adopted by white families, sometimes white families who lived in the United States or the United Kingdom. Between 1950 and the mid-1960s, these Aboriginal children went from making up about 1% of the children in care in Canada to making up more than a third of the children in care. And that also has parallels to another past episode in our archives, which is Australia's Stolen Generations, which followed a really similar pattern from about 1910 to 1970. And we should also note that there are ongoing issues with Indigenous and Aboriginal children in the child welfare systems in the United States, in Australia, and Canada, all, all three nations. Um, we mentioned these boarding schools really briefly in, those, in that two-parter about the Fort Shaw Indian School Program, but I wanted to take the opportunity to go in a little more detail here today. And we will talk about something else that similarly happened in Canada after a quick sponsor break. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
2: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
0: Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
1: On February 15th and 17th, 2017, we did a two-part podcast on Executive Order 9066 and the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. When we posted these episodes on our social media, one of the comments that we got was, this happened in Canada too, which is not something we had mentioned in that episode at all. But it's not just that this happened in Canada too. The Canadian incarceration of its Japanese citizens and residents directly followed what happened in the United States.
2: During World War I, the Canadian government had passed the War Measures Act, which granted very broad authority when it came to restricting civil liberties during wartime. During World War II, the War Measures Act was used to incarcerate about 24,000 people in Canada, nearly all of them Japanese Canadians. Other people incarcerated included German Canadians who were members of the Canadian Nazi Party or German-sponsored organizations— and approximately 600 Italians who were suspected of supporting fascism. About 3,000 refugees from Germany and Austria were also incarcerated, many of them Jewish, and many of the Jewish refugees were incarcerated along with Nazi prisoners of war.
1: When it came to the Japanese Canadians, though, all Japanese Canadians, regardless of their citizenship status, were required to register with the government in March of 1941 And then after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii in December of 1941, events in Canada followed the same basic pattern that they did in the United States that we talked about in detail in those two episodes. A small number of Japanese nationals were taken into custody right away, and then white business owners, farmers, and political leaders on the Pacific coast of Canada started pressuring the government to remove their Japanese neighbors— these arguments and language that were used were just virtually identical to what was used in the United States.
2: First, Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King ordered the removal of adult men of Japanese ancestry from Canada's West Coast on January 14, 1942. Then on February 19, 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 regarding the removal of all Japanese Americans from the U.S. West Coast. Five days after that, the Canadian cabinet followed suit in Canada and approved Order in Council PC-1486, which the prime minister announced on February 26th. This broadened the earlier removal to include everyone of Japanese ancestry living within 100 miles of Canada's Pacific coast. The British Columbia Security Commission was created to oversee and manage the expulsion and incarceration.
1: About 65% of the 22,000 Japanese Canadians who were removed following this order had been born in Canada, and in many cases, their property was confiscated and sold or otherwise never returned to them, Japanese fishers on the west coast of Canada were also required to turn over their boats, which was of course the source of their livelihood, and these also were not returned.
2: During this removal, more than 2,000 single men were sent to work on road labor camps, and about 3,500 were sent to work on sugar beet farms outside of British Columbia. Everyone else was sent to segregated concentration camps. As was true in the United States, these Canadian camps were very hastily built or were
1: converted from facilities like abandoned mining camps. They were totally insufficient to provide shelter from the elements. In the United States, the government had provided food, clothing, and schooling for incarcerated children, although overwhelmingly these were inadequate at best. The Canadian government provided the camps, but no food or clothing and no education beyond elementary school for the incarcerated children, There was also an organized resistance to this in Canada, including the creation of the Nisei Mass Evacuation Group.
2: The incarcerations in the United States and Canada ended slightly differently. In the U.S., many Japanese Americans returned to the West Coast after the end of the war, even though often they had to start completely over and they faced ongoing prejudice and discrimination. In Canada, Japanese Canadians were not allowed to return to British Columbia. Instead, they had two choices, to settle somewhere in Canada outside of British Columbia or to return to Japan. Although some people did return to Japan voluntarily, thousands were forcibly deported after refusing to move out of British Columbia, which had been their home. And I should also note that some of them were not originally from Japan.
1: They were born in Canada and had never been to Japan. Investigations conducted after this incarceration was over concluded that the property of Japanese Canadians that had been sold during the war was sold for far less than it was worth, but the Canadian government really resisted offering any kind of compensation or acknowledgement for this or, in general, for the incarceration. Then in September of 1988, Canada reached a settlement agreement that included an official apology and a redress payment of $21,000 for each person who was affected, along with the establishment of a $12 million fund to create a Canadian race relations foundation. The United States had taken similar steps in a law that was signed on August 10th of the same year. So that was another way that the two countries paralleled each other in all of this. So moving
2: on to our next topic, uh... Again, not super delightful story. Uh, At the beginning of our podcast on Executive Order 9066, we set the stage by talking about the history of immigration from Japan and other parts of Asia to the United States, as well as the history of discrimination against these immigrants. A big part of that discussion was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, and that act has come up in other episodes as well, including our episodes on Levi Strauss, the Bisbee deportation, and the history of foreign foods in the U.S. This act banned all immigration from China for a period of 10 years. It was the United States' first major law restricting immigration and the first time that the U.S. banned people from a specific nation.
1: Canada faced a very similar trajectory. In the late 19th century, large numbers of Chinese immigrants arrived in Canada first with the gold rush and then to work on the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway. As the number of Chinese people in Canada increased, so did anti-Chinese prejudice. A lot of white residents resented Chinese immigrants under the idea that they were stealing jobs. Then this sense increased as the railway was finished and these laborers started finding work in other industries.
2: A motion was made in Parliament to enact a law prohibiting all Chinese immigration into British Columbia, just as the United States had done. Rather than simply pass the law, Parliament established the Royal Commission on Chinese Immigration to evaluate, quote, all the facts and matters connected to the whole subject of Chinese immigration. Although the commission had been established after a call to ban Chinese immigration and heard a lot of racist testimony, the commission found that these racist stereotypes were untrue and that overall, Chinese labor was beneficial to Canada. It did recommend implementing a $10 duty on immigrants from China to pay for health inspection at the port and other administrative costs. Some of the
1: study was actually conducted in San Francisco, uh, specifically with officials from the Chinese consulate there. But the Chinese Immigration Act of 1885 ignored the findings from the commission and instead instituted a duty of $50 a person, specifically to act as a deterrent. The act did allow some exceptions from this duty, including diplomats, government officials, tourists, and students— It also imposed restrictions on the vessels that were carrying Chinese immigrants to Canada. There could be only one Chinese person for every 50 tons of the ship's weight. Ships carrying European immigrants, on the other hand, could have one immigrant for every two tons. This was Canada's first major immigration law to to target immigrants based on their nation of origin.
2: The $50 fee did reduce the number of Chinese people who tried to enter Canada, but not for long. As the economy of British Columbia continued to expand, there was more and more demand for labor. There weren't enough people in British Columbia to meet this demand. So within five years, the number of Chinese immigrants to Canada was increasing again.
1: In response, the Canadian government kept increasing that duty, which had been $50, and it rose all the way up to $500 in 1903. Then 20 years after that, the Chinese Immigration Act of 1923 banned nearly all Chinese people from entering Canada at all, with the exception of students, merchants, diplomats, and Canadian-born people who were returning to Canada. There were also some exceptions to the exceptions Merchants excluded laundry, restaurant, and retail operators. The 1923 Act also required everyone of Chinese descent to register for an identity card, regardless of whether they were Canadian citizens. This act was repealed in 1947, although there continued to be traces of these restrictions in Canadian immigration law until
2: 1967. We're going to get to some more Canadian history after we pause for a little sponsor break.
1: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit
2: QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
0: Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. In
1: 2011, previous hosts, Sarah and Dublina released an episode on the New York Draft riots. We re-released that episode as a Saturday classic on July 7th, 2018, and like its name suggests... The New York draft riots of 1863 started because of the Civil War draft, but the riot was not only about the draft. Another big factor was discontent among working-class people who were facing increasing competition for jobs, as escaped slaves and other people of African descent were moving into New York. Race also was a huge part of it, and the rioters primarily targeted the Black community. The Shelburne Riots of 1784 weren't identical to the New York Draft Riots, but they had a lot of similarities and parallels, including connections to war, labor, and race.
2: During the Revolutionary War, roughly a fifth of the Black residents of the British colonies fought on the side of the Loyalists, who wanted American colonies to remain part of Britain the vast majority had been enslaved and expected that after the war was over, they would be granted their freedom in exchange for their service. But when the Loyalist side lost the war and the colonies became independent, some of those people were recaptured and returned to slavery.
1: Many of those that weren't ultimately made their way into Canada In particular, in 1783, about 1,500 Black loyalists settled in Nova Scotia, many of them concentrated in Shelburne County, which was home also to about 16,000 white loyalists. Most Black loyalists made their homes in a community that was not far from the town of Shelburne, called Birchtown, and soon that became the largest community of
2: free Black people in North America. However, slavery also existed in Canada, including in Shelburne. Slave owners in Shelburne felt threatened by the free Black community in Birchtown and the effects that it might have on their enslaved workforce. Nova Scotia's white residents also tended to view all people of African descent as slaves, regardless of whether they were enslaved or free. Working-class white residents also faced increasing competition for paying work from this growing Black community, especially since people who needed to hire labor could do it much more cheaply by exploiting the Black population. Another complication
1: in all this was soldiers who were returning home from the Revolutionary War who no longer had employment or income. A lot of people in the area had also been promised land grants, but those grants had been repeatedly delayed, and a lot of the land turned out not to be suitable for farming.
2: So in both New York in 1863 and Shelburne nearly 80 years earlier, white residents were increasingly resentful of a growing population of free black residents as a result of a war and the effect it was having on their lives and income. In New York, the draft tipped this resentment into violence. In Shelburne, that spark came from the intersection of religion and racism.
1: Baptist preacher David George had been born in Virginia in 1742 and was enslaved from birth. He escaped to South Carolina and lived in hiding for several years before being captured and sold back into slavery. He fled to British-occupied Savannah during the Revolutionary War in 1778 and then traveled to Charleston, where he was evacuated along with about 5,000 Black residents in 1782. Although most of these evacuees wound up being enslaved again and sent to the Caribbean, George wound up in
2: Nova Scotia. He established his church in Shelburne rather than in Birchtown, and some of his congregation built their homes on church property. And at first, the white residents of Shelburne mostly left them alone. But eventually, George started baptizing white loyalists. The idea of a black minister baptizing white people, especially at a church in, quote, their part of town, outraged many white residents.
1: In July of 1784, a group of white loyalists tried to forcibly remove a white woman who was about to be baptized by David George. Then on the 26th of that month, a group of about 40 white loyalists attacked George's house physically pulling it down using a ship's tackle. They went on to tear down other homes that had been built on the church property, destroying about 20 houses. This swelled into a riot that lasted for about 10 days, with the white residents of Shelburne trying to drive the black residents out of both Shelburne and Birchtown. Eventually, four companies of the 17th Regiment and later a naval frigate were dispatched to restore order.
2: The rioters did not succeed in evicting the Black community from Nova Scotia, but that community did continue to face racism and discrimination in the years that followed. Economic changes also made life more difficult. Seven years after the riot, when Black residents were offered the chance to relocate to a colony in Sierra Leone, about half of them accepted
1: We've talked repeatedly on this show about how the term race riot is really a misnomer because it makes it sound like people of multiple races were equal aggressors in some kind of mass violence. Overwhelmingly, though, these incidents of mass violence are really the result of a white mob attacking members of an already oppressed race or religion or ethnic group. That said, the Shelburne riots are often described as North America's first race riot.
2: This also has a connection to another previous episode. Nova Scotia is where a large number of Maroons wound up after the Maroon Wars in Jamaica, which we talked about in February of 2017.
1: And now we will move on to our last and less appalling uh, impossible episode on this show. For a long time, every time we mentioned Paul Revere... On our social media or whatever, folks would ask, what about Sybil Ludington? So we talked about her in our second ever installment of six impossible episodes on September 16th, 2015. There were already episodes in the archive about Paul Revere and his famous ride. Now it is just as likely that mentioning either Paul Revere or Sybil Ludington will prompt people to ask, what about Laura Secord?
2: Paul Revere was one of three men who rode to raise the alarm of a British attack on Lexington, Massachusetts on April 18, 1775. Sybil Ludington rode to raise the alarm of a British attack on Danbury, Connecticut on April 26, 1777, although, as we noted when we talked about her, there is no primary source documentation of that ride and in 1813, Laura Secord raised the alarm of an incoming American attack on British forces on foot. This was during the War of 1812. Secord was
1: the wife of James Secord, who had been serving as a sergeant in the 1st Lincoln Militia. When he was injured in the Battle of Queenston Heights, his wife rescued him from the battlefield personally after the fighting was over.
2: While Laura was nursing James back to health, American troops occupied Queenston in present-day Ontario, where they lived. After the Seacords were forced to house some American officers, Laura overheard them talking about a planned attack on British forces at Beaver Dams, who were under the command of James Fitzgibbon. Since James, her husband, James Seacord, was still recovering, Laura decided that she would raise the alarm herself.
1: Beaver Dams was about 32 kilometers, or 20 miles, away, and Laura Secord made this trip on foot through occupied territory, taking a really winding route over difficult terrain to try to avoid detection. She arrived on June 22nd or 23rd, 1813, and on the 24th, the incoming American force was ambushed by a First Nations fighting force that was allied with the British, the American force, which numbered about 500 men, ultimately surrendered before British
2: reinforcements arrived. As was true of Sybil Luddington, there was no mention of Secord's warning in the official report. However, unlike Ludington, Secord petitioned the government for a pension later in her life. This led James Fitzgibbon to testify that, yes, Secord had warned him of the incoming attack, so we do have an official statement from someone who was actually there. It's not clear whether Seacord's warning arrived ahead of the Indigenous scouts, who also brought Fitzgibbon the same intelligence. But her trip definitely did happen. The petition for her pension was also unsuccessful, but Albert Edward, Prince of Wales, who would later become Edward VII, did award her 100 pounds.
1: Another parallel between Sybil Luddington and Laura Seacord is that they have both become really heavily mythologized and commemorated, especially in a whole lot of children's literature. There's also a candy company that bears Laura Secord's name. I think listeners have sent us Laura Secord chocolate before. That company was started in 1913 by Frank P. O'Connor, who named it after her. And those are our six things that also happened in Canada, which I guess is really five things that also happened in Canada and one thing that also happened in the United States. Most of them terrible. Yes. Do you have terrible email? Uh, I mean, it depends on whether you find Sir Walter Raleigh's head funny
2: uh, <laughs> or, terrible.
1: <laughs> or terrible. So, this is from Susanna, and Susanna says, Hello, Holly and Tracy. Thank you for your podcast on Sir Walter Raleigh. I grew up in a small English town that was home to Sir Walter for a while, then immigrated to the U.S. and specifically to Raleigh, North Carolina. Given this, you would think I would know more about him. Alas, I did not. What you said you knew in the opening was about all I knew with the addition of thinking that he was beheaded for his marriage to Bess. Thank you for filling in all my gaps. I would like to take a a moment (laughs) to pause and say I am so glad I am not the only person who seems like I should know a lot more about Sir Walter Raleigh than I did when I started on that episode. To return to the letter... I wanted to let you know about a Sir Walter Raleigh legend that I grew up with. Sir Walter Raleigh was given Sherburne Castle. Uh, she sent a link to that website, which is in the town I am from. Rumor has it that in the 1970s, some Americans were working on the lake. As they were working, Sir Walter, in ghost form, walked on the lake toward them, holding his head under his arm. The Americans ran and refused to finish the work on the lake. I'm sure this is not true, but it is a fun story. I myself have had an experience with ghosts in this castle, so maybe it was a different ghost and not Sir Walter. Side note, my uncle worked at this castle for his whole working career, and he has many, many ghost stories. Thank you for all your amazing episodes. I also uh, saw you live in Raleigh a few months ago, which I really enjoyed. Susanna, Thank you, Susanna, for this note and for this story that I found very funny. Just the idea of some workers at the lake being like, nope, gotta go. (laughs) Uh, That cracked me up a little bit. And also, thank you for coming to our show in Raleigh. We had a very good time there. Indeed. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we are all over the internet at Missed in History. That is where you will find our Facebook, our Pinterest, our Instagram, our Twitter. You can come to our website, MissedInHistory.com, and find show notes on all the episodes that Holly and I have ever done together and a searchable archive of every episode ever. And you can find and subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.